Proverbs 18, verse 13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. The spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Seeks knowledge. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. The cast lot puts an end to strife and decides between the mighty ones. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. With the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we meditate, Lord, this afternoon upon these contrasts that we see so manifesting the difference between, Lord, the righteous and the wicked, Lord, we pray that we would incorporate, Lord, these components of faith and obedience into our own life. Lord, that we would prove ourselves to be your children, Lord, by seeking to live a life that's pleasing to you. Lord, we thank you as well as we think of this wisdom, Lord, seen in such practical ways through the various circumstances of life. Lord, we thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ perfectly displayed this wisdom of yours found in the book of Proverbs. And no matter what situation he faced, or no matter what circumstance he found himself in, he always did those things that are pleasing to you, and he always proved that he was upright and righteous. And Lord, we thank you that he is our source of salvation. But Lord, we do pray that we would also walk in the same manner that he walked, and that Lord, we would walk in the godliness that is seen here in the book of Proverbs. So, Lord, teach us today, Lord, that we might know your will, and in knowing it, Lord, might live lives that are pleasing to you, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Proverbs 18, we'll begin there in verse 13. It says, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Here, when a person answers before he hears, whenever he's listening to another person, but instead of letting this person finish what he's saying, he's constantly cutting him off, interrupting him, speaking and talking over him. This is certainly an evidence of folly and shame when someone behaves in such a manner because they've proved themselves to be rude, to be discourteous, to have no love or concern or care of listening to what other people say, but only in spouting out their own wisdom and their own knowledge and understanding. And certainly, we probably have met people who are like this or have had conversations with people like this who constantly interrupt, who cut you off, who won't let you finish a coherent thought or a sentence because they're always wanting to speak and give an answer before they hear and before they listen. So certainly, this is a possibility that when people do this, it is folly and shame. Also, whenever we give an answer without having all the facts, without going and investigating and having a clear understanding of what is going on, but then formulating our opinions, formulating our judgments without having all the information, without being careful to listen and to hear and to gather the evidence and to sit and to compose our thoughts in our mind and have a sound mind, but then just speak rashly, abruptly, with only partial information or without reflecting on these things so that we are making a reasoned approach to that, this also is folly and shame when someone does so. Because many times in the heat of the moment, right, we get worked up and we say things that we shouldn't say or that we regret later. We say things that are foolish and shameful there in the heat of the moment. And had we listened better or had we composed ourselves more instead of acting rashly and abruptly, then we could have avoided such folly and shame, right? So this is what he means. Whenever we don't listen, but we are quick to speak, it often leads to folly and shame because we're going to say things that are going to be contradicted later on. And this is why in James chapter 119, it says that we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anchor. 
quick to hear. We need to practice the discipline of listening, of listening and then slow to speak. Even when we listen, we should not respond immediately many times, but rather we need to be careful and cautious whenever we respond so that we are slow to speak. Slow to speak because we are wanting to practice caution, knowing that our words have the potential to do a lot of damage, right? If we speak unseasonably, if we speak irrationally, then those words can do a lot of damage to relationships, to the church, to the family, right? To the, in between the husband and wife or the father and the children, the mother and the children, whatever relationships are there in the home, in the church, in society. If we are speaking rashly in these ways, then it can cause a lot of difficulties and problems. Also, Proverbs 28 Proverbs 28, well, it may be 25. I can't read my own writing sometimes. <clears throat> Maybe it's 29. Ah, yes, 29. Proverbs 29, 20. It's either 8, a 5, or a 9, and it turned out it was a 9. Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So again, the Bible warns us, both Old and New Testament, of the danger of being hasty in our words, that we need to be very careful, guarded, and cautious in the things that we say. And yet, because we have such a high opinion of ourselves, and because we are full of pride and arrogance, and this is, again, universal, and even, even believers who still have the flesh, we have a tendency to do this, we often are very hasty in our words because we believe ourselves to be the fount of all wisdom and understanding. But the Bible is warning us that we should be very careful in these things so that is not to uh, speak in ways that are inconsistent with the will of God. Verse 14, the spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? Here, he's making a contrast between physical infirmities and those that would be like an infirmity of the heart, right? Sadness of spirit or sadness of heart. And that those physical things that we deal with, physical ailments in our life, when we're sick, we have the flu, uh, we break some bone, or there's some physical ailment that is upon us, even if it is of a severe nature, uh, you know, that these things are more easily bore with than the infirmities that are in our soul or in our heart whenever we have sadness of spirit in those ways, right? That there is this dual component to the nature of man, both the physical, both the outward, but also the inner man. And it is those inner troubles, those inner turmoils that bear the greater weight upon us. And we often know that this is the case. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says there, the reason why for the believer or for why it is that we're able to bear these physical infirmities greater than or with more ease than those internal ones would be 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Right? The spirit that God has given to dwell within us is one that allows us to think in a proper way about the various things that we experience and that we go through in this life. And when we are afflicted physically, but spiritually our mind is right before God, we're able to bear those things. But whenever our affliction is a spiritual affliction, right, something that is touching our mind or our heart in that way, then it causes us to be in turmoil that we're not thinking reasonably and rationally. We're not thinking in a spiritual way, and it causes much consternation upon us, even if there is legitimacy to these things. Like in Nehemiah chapter 2, when Nehemiah found out about the condition of Jerusalem and the welfare of his own people, his grief over these things was evident even to the king, right? And he understood and knew that it was sadness of heart that was causing him this grief. Nehemiah 2.1, it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you're not sick? 
This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. This is similar to what we're seeing here in verse 14. The broken spirit, sadness of heart. These things are very difficult and very hard for us to bear. And many times the physical ailment is more tolerable than when there is this sadness of heart. And when there is that sadness of heart, all the more reason for us to cry out to God, right? Such as our Lord Jesus Christ did, with prayers, supplications, with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to deliver him. And he even said in the garden that his soul was troubled. He was grieved even to the point of death. Those types of griefs and heartaches are more difficult to bear than even the physical ailments that we face in this life. Verse 15, the mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Here, the mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Here, you have the same thing being said in two different ways or repeated in order to emphasize, right? The prudent man who is the wise man, what he wants and what he desires in his mind is to gain and acquire knowledge and understanding. And this is knowledge of the will of God, knowledge of the ways of God and understanding of the very righteousness of God. And his ears are always seeking after more and more of this knowledge from God. So he is a prudent and wise man, which means he has to have some measure of understanding. He has already acquired some measure of wisdom and knowledge and understanding from God. But with a wise man, in this present life, does he ever attain perfect wisdom? Will any of us ever come to a perfect understanding of the wisdom of God? Right? We always will only know in part in this life. So no matter how much we grow and how wise we may become, there's always room for improvement. There's always room for growth. And this is one of the marks of a wise man. No matter how much wisdom he attains from God, he always sees that he needs more and he wants more and he does what is necessary to gain more. And here it is his ears that seek this wisdom or knowledge. And what is it that he wants to listen to? Because where does our wisdom come from? the very word of God. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That is where he knows the source of wisdom and understanding is. And this is why Jesus says in Luke 8, 18, that the one who has, more will be given to him. But the one who does not have, even what he has, will be taken away. Right? The one who has wisdom, he sees the good and the value of that. He also sees that he does not attain perfect wisdom in this life, so he always wants more. And he's always seeking more of it in the word of God. And if he's seeking for it, what will he do? He will find it. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. He's asking God for more wisdom. He's seeking it from the word of God, and he's going to find it there. And he's going to grow and become wiser still. But the one who has no desire for this wisdom, even whenever he interacts with the Bible, even whenever he hears some of the wisdom of God, it does not retain within his person. But rather, it's in one ear and out the other. And even what he has is taken away from him and lost, and it does not benefit him in his life. So we need to be those who are prudent and wise but also have the humility to recognize that none of us are perfect and none of us have obtained perfect wisdom from God. So we all have room to grow and to improve and we need to seek diligently after God's wisdom like we would treasures, right? If we knew that there was treasure in the ground that would make us rich, we would dig and we would search and we would put the effort in to find that treasure. Well, this is what the word of God is. It is a treasure of the wisdom and riches of God, but we have to be diligent. We have to put in the effort to seek it in order to find it, right? We have to do and read the word of God so that we might grow in our wisdom. Verse 16 says, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Here, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Now, this could be taken in one of two ways. It could be taken in the sense of a bribe, that a bribe, when a man gives a bribe, right, it makes room for him and brings him before great men. However, it also can be taken in a righteous sense, that there is a place in a sense where even the godly understand and recognize that whenever they come before great people, 
or whenever they are seeking the favor of another, that there is a proper place to offer them a gift, not to manipulate them, right? Not to bribe them and to blind them to justice, but to show your graciousness, to show your love, your humility, your desire to, to bless them in that way, right? Didn't the wise men bring gifts to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And when they offered those gifts to him, were they bribing him? Were they trying to get God to turn a blind eye toward justice? No, they were doing it sincerely out of love for him. And there is a proper way for us to give gifts to those that we love or even to great ones in order to obtain and win their favor and to have acceptance in them and to show our love and our devotion and our support of them. So it doesn't have to necessarily be evil or wrong to give a gift or to seek to gain favor with someone by granting to them some act of kindness or some act of graciousness. Now, an example of this, in the wrong way, but also used as an example of how shrewd we should be, is Luke 16. Luke 16, here the shrewd manager used the gift that he had access to as the steward over his master's property in order to gain favor among men, so that whenever he was out of a job, he would have people that could help him out, okay? Luke 16, verse 1. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and began to say to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down, and quickly write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said, Take your bill and write eighty. His master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of this age, are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. So here, what was a principle that is true on this earth, that a gift gains favor among men and makes room for them? Isn't this what the unjust or the unrighteous steward did? He used his master's possessions... He gave gifts to these men so that whenever he lost his employment, they would make room for him. They would receive him into their homes and provide for him. And the application in Luke 16 is that if this is how the sons of this age are in dealing with their own generation, then this is how we should be in dealing with spiritual matters. And we should use unrighteous wealth, right? We should use the possessions that we have in this life to make friends for ourselves so that when we enter into the kingdom of God, then people will welcome us into their dwelling, right? Or that we will use it for spiritual, heavenly, eternal purposes now so that there is an eternal reward waiting for us in the life to come, right? So this is something that is true here in this life, but also it should be applied spiritually and eternally in the way that we are dealing with things. And also we remember in Genesis 32, when Jacob was returning from Laban and coming back to the land of Canaan, and Esau, his brother, was coming out to meet him, Jacob sought to appease and to gain favor with his brother by sending him gifts, sending him gifts in these various waves in order to gain his favor and to appease him. And Jacob isn't accredited with sin in doing that. He's not trying to buy him off. He's simply desiring to show his love and to bless his brother in light of all that God has done for him. And in that way, it made room for him and it was a blessing there to his brother. Verse 17. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Here, whenever we are seeking to understand uh, a conflict or something between two people, 
right, when there's two parties or something has happened, right, we have to have both sides of the story so that we can make a proper judgment of what is going on. If only one person gets to plead his case, he's always going to seem right because everyone is going to bend things into the most favorable way in which they look, right? If in the court of law, only the defense or only the prosecution gets to make the case and the other side never gets to get up, if say it's the prosecution that only gets to speak and the defense never gets to speak, then you're always going to have people found guilty all the time because there has to be the other side that is able to plead their case and able to cross-examine these witnesses in order to poke holes in their testimony and to show what is true and what is right. right? The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Now, when the other comes along and examines, he may be proven to be right if what he said is right and true, but he also may be true, be proven that everything that he said is not accurate and true. So we have to be, again, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We must get both sides of the story so that we can make proper judgments in dealing with these kinds of issues. Now, an example of this in the Bible would be 2 Samuel 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16, and this would be with Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, and then Mephibosheth, whenever he is able to give his defense. 2 Samuel 16, verse 1. It says, now when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, uh, met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them were 200 loaves of bread, and a 100 clusters of raisins, and a 100 summer fruits, and a jug of wine. The king said to Ziba, why do you have these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine, for whoever is faint in the wilderness to drink. The king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, O my lord the king. Now here, in this one testimony, the first to present his case what does it seem to be true of Mephibosheth? Well, it seems like he has betrayed David, that he is a traitor, and Ziba has come out and is faithful, is a supporter of David, is going and bringing all these things in order to bless him. But Mephibosheth, who was of the household of Saul, stayed in Jerusalem hoping to have the kingdom restored back to the line of Saul. But then, if we go over to chapter 19, this is after David is brought back and restored as king. Then Mephibosheth comes to David and he says a different story, right? He tells the truth about what really happened with Ziba. First, uh, 2 Samuel 19, 24. Then Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he had neither cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes, from the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. And it was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So he answered, O oh my lord, the king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, because your servant is lame. Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your sight. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who ate at your own table. What right do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him even take it all since my lord the king has come safely to his own house. So here, he had not betrayed the king, but rather Ziba had slandered him, had lied to David, 
giving him the impression that Mephibosheth had betrayed him in order for Ziba to gain favor with King David. But then when Mephibosheth is examined and he presents his case, then he tells what really happened. So if David is making his judgments and conclusions based simply on the testimony of Ziba, his conclusion is going to be that Mephibosheth is a traitor. But when he comes along and examines the other side, then he finds out what really happened, right? More of the story, and he's able to come to a more complete and a more accurate judgment. And this is the way that we have to be when we're dealing with matters in the home, right? Especially when you're dealing with your children, you know, because they, they start crying and, you know, he comes in and, why are you crying? Well, Abel hit me. And it's like, well, Abel, why did you hit Jude? Well, he threw something at my face. And it's like, well, that's a whole different story, right? you got to get both sides so that you really know what's going on. Not that Abel and Jude throw stuff at each other or hit each other in the head. Although Jude did hit Abel in the head with a cane the other day. So anyway, but it was an accident. It was an accident. This is the way it is, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the church, whether it's in society, in the court of law. Wherever it is, you have to hear both sides in order to make a proper judgment and come to a good, accurate understanding of these things. Verse 18. The cast lot puts an end to strife and decides between the mighty ones. Here, whenever there is some disagreement, a disagreement that cannot be resolved, it cannot be resolved through uh, negotiation, through reasoning, the two parties cannot come to an agreement on their own, then even if they go before others and others hear the case and it's too difficult for even them to come to an accurate understanding, then ultimately what they could do was let it fall into the lot, right? Say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to cast a lot. And as long as both parties agree that wherever the lot falls, then they're going to agree to those terms and to the agreement that has come upon, then the lot is able to be used to end strife and decide disputes between these mighty ones. We'll leave it to the Lord, and we'll cast the lot, and wherever the lot falls, then this is how it will be settled and determined. This is the manner in which they divided up the land whenever they came into the land of Canaan. Because when they came into the land, you had these tribes, and some land is better than other land. Some land is more fertile. Some is, is, is in a better spot than other places. So how do you decide equitably in a just way who gets what allotment of land? And what was the method they used to determine who got their allotment of land? They cast lots for it. They cast lots, and however the lot fell, then that is where it landed, and that is how they received it. And amongst the righteous, the understanding is that the decision of the lot comes ultimately from who? Well, it comes from the Lord, right? It comes from the Lord. So it is an understanding and acceptance of the providence of God and God's sovereignty over these types of things. Now, of course, that does, he's not supporting gambling or casinos and that type of nonsense, but he's talking about it in determining these decisions or things where people are not able to, using the best of their ability, they're not able to come to a decision on something that then it would be suitable to cast the lot and give it into the lap of the Lord and let God be the one to determine it in this way because we've exhausted. And as long as there is agreement entering into this, then it brings an end to strife. Now they're not fighting and arguing anymore about what is just and right because they both submitted to this thing. Verse 19, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Here, when a brother is offended, right, we're not talking about a stranger, we're not talking about an enemy, we're not talking about an associate, but a brother. When a brother is offended, right, it's harder for him to be won than to win a strong city. Right? And these kinds of contentions that exist between brothers are like the bars of a citadel. They're very difficult to overcome, and these things can be almost impossible, impregnable, to overcome these contentions and strives when they rise up among brothers, right? Whether that be in families, whether that be in the church. Where there is greater love and greater affection previously, then when there is some contention that arises, oftentimes that hatred that comes as a result of that 
because of the love that was there before, it makes it very, very difficult to overcome those things. So much so that it's easier to take a strong city than it is to overcome the contention and the strife that exists between brothers. Because the love that was there before, the hatred that comes afterwards is of a very bitter degree. So this is a reminder to us that we should be very, very careful not to fall afoul of one another, not to needlessly upset one another, to be very careful not to quarrel and to fight and for there to be contentions among ourselves. Because when there are offenses that rise up in the home or in the church, many times these things can be irreconcilable. And we've all heard of churches, church splits, where people even years later won't have anything to do with, with one another. People who were in harmony, they were in fellowship, they were in unity for many, many years, great friendships for many years, and then there's something that happens, some turmoil, and they are separated, and they may go 20 or 30 years without ever speaking to each other. In the home as well, parents to their children, a sibling to another sibling, right? They grew up together, they had friendship, they had love for one another for many, many years, but then there's something that happens between the brother and the sister, or between two brothers, or between the father and the son, the mother and the daughter. And this controversy, this contention is so great that they may not speak to each other for years upon years upon years. And this can happen. So it is a reminder to us to be very careful that we don't cause offense or that there's not these kinds of contentions quarreling and bickering and fighting amongst ourselves needlessly, right? And we can even think of examples from the Bible. Cain and Abel, right? Cain and Abel. Now, not that Abel sinned against Cain. Cain was the one that was in the wrong the whole time. But the degree of this contention and strife that existed between these brothers led to murder, right? Led to murder. Jacob and Esau. Again, not that Esau was in the right, but he wanted to murder his own brother, and they were twins, right? For crying out loud. And twins are usually even closer than uh, other siblings, right? Who have some distance between them. Joseph and his brothers, right? They sought to murder him and they threw him there in that pit. Amnon and Absalom, right? Because of what had happened with Absalom's sister. He was so bent against him and had such bitterness and hatred that he plotted and planned for years to murder his brother. And then eventually he brought it about. So these are examples of when there is contention and strife, even Paul and Barnabas, who were both believers and both righteous men and both servants of God. Yet when there was a strife between them, it led to a separation where they were not in partnership in this ministry anymore. So again, it is the reminder of how easily we are offended and how difficult it is for us to overcome these things, to be very careful be very careful about offending and contentions with one another. Verse 20, with the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. Wise words fill the stomach, right, which is an emblem for the life of a man with many good things, right? When he speaks wise words in his home, in the church, at work, in society, it is profitable, it is beneficial to men, and it's also satisfying even to his own soul and to his own conscience because he knows that when he's speaking these wise words, he is a benefit. He's a benefit to himself, to his household, to all mankind when he is saying these things. And this is why the fruit of his mouth will satisfy him, right? He's satisfied with the product of his lips. This because these are wise words. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 11 and 12. Says, The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. There, the wise words, the words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. This is why the fruit of the lips is so satisfying when what is coming from the lips 
is the very wisdom of God, the very knowledge of God found in the word of God. Then verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Here, death and life are in the power of the tongue. The tongue is a source either of death or it can be a source of life, a source of good or a source of evil, right? The tongue can bring about both of these things. When we're using our tongue to teach the Bible and to teach the way of salvation, as is in the word of God, then our tongue is a source of life. The words that we speak are there and they are a source of life to those who hear it. But when we're spouting out our own wisdom, our own understanding, false doctrines, then our words are a source of death that leads to ruin both to ourselves and ruin to those who hear us. And this is why those who love it will eat of its fruit, either for good or evil. Those who love the wise words that come from wise men, they will eat of that fruit to eternal life. But those who love the foolish words, the lying words of false teachers, they also will eat of that fruit and it will lead to their own damnation and their condemnation, right? Because it is by our words that we will be justified and by our words we will be condemned, as it says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 37, right? We are going to be judged on the day of judgment by what we have said, And if there are wise words that lead to good, then we will eat the fruit of that. And if there are evil words, lying words that lead to destruction, to death, then we will eat of those things. 22 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now here, when he says he who finds a wife finds a good thing, it assumes that it's a good wife, a good and a godly wife. Though there are benefits to Uh, marriage in all capacities, but especially when there is a righteous wife. And also the converse is true as well. He who finds a husband finds a good thing if he's a good husband, right? Not if he's a worthless deadbeat, a drunkard and a glutton, then that's not going to be a value. If the wife is a nag and contentious, then that's not going to be a value and benefit to the man. Because the Proverbs also say it's better to live on the corner of the house than to live with a contentious wife. So he, he must assume that it's a good wife, right? Those who find a good wife, they also find a good thing, right? That this is something that is going to not be a detriment to their happiness, to their well-being, to their good, but it's going to support and be a benefit to their happiness, well-being, and good. In Proverbs 31, Proverbs 31, verse 10, says, an excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. An excellent wife who can find, right? They are hard to find, but when one does find one, he finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord, right? It is a favor, a blessing from God. So marriage is a gift and a blessing from God. And we must contend for this, especially in our own generation, where marriage is continually under assault, right? Both by its false redefinition, saying that a man can marry a man or a woman can marry a woman, which is just completely stupid and ludicrous, or also by its neglect, saying that you don't even need to get married, that you can just cohabitat or do whatever they like to do, and that you don't need to get married and have a family and have children and do those kinds of things. So in every way in our own society, marriage is being assaulted and demeaned in this way. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible sees it as an honorable institution established by God for the mutual well-being and happiness of mankind, both for men and women. And that continues even after the fall, though it is attended with more difficulties because of the entrance of sin into the world. Because whenever the man marries a woman, even if she is a good wife and an excellent woman, she's still a Well, she's still a woman. (laughs) I'm just kidding. She still uh, has flesh, right? She still has a fleshly side. And the man, no matter how good of a man he is, he's still a man, right? And he still has the flesh. And the flesh of the husband and the flesh of the wife, in some cases, are going to rise up and they're going to be in in conflict with one another. And there's going to be strife and contention in all homes, no matter how godly the people are. 
However, even still, it is still a blessing from God, a benefit from God, and it has many blessings for those who enter into it, right? And this is according to the design of God. Didn't God say in Genesis chapter 2, it is not good for the man to be alone? And commonly speaking, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, there are exceptions, such as the Apostle Paul, who was celibate by choice for the sake of ministry. However, this is a rare exception. Commonly, the men will marry women, and the women need to marry men. And then those who demean marriage are also practicing doctrines of demons, according to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Those who forbid marriage. And can we think of a church, a denomination that demeans marriage in their priesthood? <clears throat> yes, we can, a very large one called the Roman Catholic Church. They forbid their priests from getting married. Well, isn't that an evil thing? If God says it's good and it's not good for man to be alone, and you're saying, no, it is good for man to be alone, but it's not because you're contradicting God. First, or, um, First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by the means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Right, Men who forbid marriage. He calls that deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons. So we should not forbid marriage. We shouldn't demean this institution, but we should hold it in high regard, right? Have it as honorable and something that is a blessing from the Lord according to the word of God. 23, the poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. The poor man, <clears throat> poor people are typically more humble, more lowly because they are in need. Now they can also be, in certain societies, they can become very entitled, such as our own society today. But in many times, with poverty, right, there is more humility, they're lowly, they're in need, and they have to depend upon others. So they have to make humble supplications to other people in order for them to give them what it is that they need. So poverty... This condition, though it does not necessarily mean that one will be a believer or a godly person or a righteous person, because there's many wicked persons in the world, yet it also, this condition outwardly, does predispose itself more toward humility and more toward making supplications because of the presence of the need. And this is why we read this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that not many of you were rich, right? Not many of them are mighty, not many of them are of noble birth. But God chooses those things that are weak and foolish in this world, right? Because it is accompanied with more humility. And this is the one that God looks to, right? Not to the proud and arrogant and haughty, but to those who are lowly in spirit. And here, certainly the poor man in a poor state utters supplications, but ultimately a poor man who is poor in spirit. He utters, utters supplications to God. Whether he is rich in this world or poor in this world, he is poor in his heart, poor in his spirit. He beats his breast and won't even look up to heaven, but says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But in contrast to that, you have the rich. The rich man answers roughly because the rich man doesn't care what people think about him because he doesn't need them. He's got all of his money and all of his wealth, and he doesn't need anyone else, so he has no care or concern if he offends this person or that person, because what are they going to do to him? He has all of his needs and all of his money that gives him his security, and as a result, he is haughty and he's arrogant and he is proud, and the way that he deals with his fellow man shows what kind of a person he is. He answers in this rough manner, especially toward those who are poor, or those that he seems, in his own mind, are inferior to him. He speaks down upon them. He answers them in this rough way. 
right? And this is true, certainly, of those who are rich in terms of material blessings. Many times this is true. But also it is certainly true of those who are rich in their own eyes, in their own self-righteousness. They're not rich in faith, but they are, in their own mind, self-righteous before God. And as a result, they're very rough in the way that they deal with other people, such as the scribes and Pharisees, who were constantly heaping burdens impossible to bear upon the people, and who would deal with them in this rough, bitter, harsh, mean-spirited way, unbecoming of Christian love and charity. Then verse 24. It says, A man of too many friends comes to ruin, and there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A man of too many friends comes to ruin. Here, he's not saying that if we have more than two or three friends that we're going to be ruined, or that there's anything wrong with being someone nice, who's easy to get along with, who people like in in, in that way. But oftentimes, someone who has many friends has many people who are using him, right? The reason that they want to befriend him is because of what he can do for them. Rich people often have many friends. But if their riches go away, what happens to all their friends? They all say bye-bye, right? They all say bye, and they have nothing to do with them anymore. And that is why a man with many friends can come to ruin. Because if his money and if his possessions go away... All of his friends go away as well, and he realizes that all these relationships were just superficial, and these people were just using him for whatever benefit they could be to him. This would be like Luke 15. Luke 15, it doesn't say specifically that the prodigal son had many friends. However, often the very things that he's doing, you do these things with companions, with your buddies, right, with Uh, Men who have no morals, and loose women as well. Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls on me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, And he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Now, again, it doesn't explicitly say here that he had many friends. However, he had a substantial estate that was given to him, a large sum of money that he received, And he went and squandered this with loose living. In loose living, you usually don't do that on your own. But you're drinking with other people. They do drugs with other people. They're committing immorality with other people. right? And there are, if somebody is wealthy, and they're committed to this loose kind of a life, to living it up, having a good time, there will be many a people who will attach themselves to them because they also want to have a good time and do all these things. But when all of his money is gone, Where are his friends? They're nowhere to be found. He's completely destitute. He's by himself all alone. His only companions are these swine, these pigs that he desires to eat there with them. So here, a man likely of many friends, when he had his money, when he was living the loose life, but then he came to ruin, and all of his friends are nowhere to be found. But in contrast, he says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. This is a true friend. And a true friend who truly loves you does not love you because of your wealth, your prosperity, of what you can do for him. But he loves you for your person, whether you're rich or poor. And if you lose your riches, he's still going to be with you and be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Now, Job's friends, in some regards, they were worthless counselors. However, we must give them this, that when Job fell out of his uh, wealth and was reduced to poverty, they did come and comfort him. Though what they were saying to him didn't prove to be comforting at all, 
at least they were there, and at least they came and sat with him, and they even sat there for many days without even speaking a word to him. And this was because of their love for him. So their friendship with Job was not based upon what he could do for them and all the wealth, his wealth and what it gave them access to, but they did come and benefit him in this way. Now, ultimately, this is true of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? That he is the friend that sticks closer than the brother. And we remember in James chapter 2, 20, chapter 2 verse 23, that there it calls Abraham the friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God. And if we have the faith of Abraham, then we will also have the friendship of God. And God's friendship, the friendship that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ, is a friendship that sticks closer to a brother than a brother. Because will Christ ever abandon his friends? Will he forsake them? Will he cast them aside? He will never do so. But he will always be there with us and for us and he loves us for who we are and because of what God has done in us, not based upon what we can do for him. And this is how God loves us. And then this is also the way that we should love one another. And this was seen in the relationship of David and Jonathan. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, 1 Samuel 18, it speaks of David and Jonathan's friendship in this way. And we know that this was borne out in their relationship throughout their life. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with the armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So there, their souls were knit together and they loved each other as they loved themselves. And Jonathan's love for David was so great that he even subjected himself to David, knowing that David was the one who would become the king and that the dynasty would be established in the line of David, and that the Christ would come from David's offspring, even though that was detrimental to Jonathan's own dynasty and him being established as king. Yet he was willing to do so because of his love for David. He was a friend that stuck closer than a brother. And even when Saul turned against David, Jonathan did not turn against him, but continued supporting him and continued to be faithful to him because he knew that David was in the right. And this is the way that we should be toward one another as well. We should be true friends that stick closer than a brother. So let's then strive for that amongst ourselves and always remember that the basis for that is that we have a friend who is closer than a brother, and that friend is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that his love for us is proven to us in that he laid down his life for our sake so that we might live through him. And let's live in that knowledge and that peace throughout the week. So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. And I'm going to ask Mike Morse back there, would you mind praying and dismissing us?